You are listening to a production of the Social Voice Podcast Network. Welcome to this very special episode of the Beaver County History Podcast. It seems like all of our episodes are special. Don't you think, Mike? I think so. I love them. (laughs) You're no stranger to our podcast, so you've been on a lot of special episodes. Uh, So today we're going to talk about folklore in Beaver County, which is especially fitting on the eve of the 2023 Pig Lady Fall Folklore Celebration coming up in New Galley. This is a great event. It's really a really cool thing, and it really supports our heritage of folklore in our neck of the woods. So our guest today is no stranger to this subject. In fact, I'd say he's probably our most authoritative voice when it comes to understanding the legends and lore and folktales of Northern Beaver County and surrounding region. Mike Hishbuker is a native of the area, and he grew up along the banks of the Little Beaver Creek, along with the tale of Barbara Davidson, also known as the Pig Lady of Canelton. In fact, Mike is the author of Legends and Lore of Little Beaver Creek, a well-researched deep dive into the backstory of our homegrown folktales. And let me just read to you this description of Mike's book, which is available at Barnes & Noble and Amazon and through many other notable booksellers. A dark and bloody past lurks beneath the folklore of the Little Beaver Creek watershed in eastern Ohio and western Pennsylvania. The first American frontiersman hesitantly settled this region in the late 1700s, following more than 40 years of warfare. Fables like Barbara Davidson, the Pig Lady of Canelton, sprang from this long, horrific conflict. The legends of Esther Hale, the White Lady of Spruce Vale, and Gretchen's Lock rose shortly thereafter, whereas the age of the Indian rock petroglyph remains hotly debated. Today, most locals know these stories, but few know the purpose of Indian Rock or why Barbara's relentless spirit sometimes appears with a pig's head. Using methods honed over 20 years of service as a Department of Defense intelligence analyst, author Mike Cushbooker uncovers the history and potential origins of these and other tales. Now, Mike has a new book that explores folklore of the Appalachian region a little further south than western Pennsylvania. This book is called The Appalachian Legend of the Wizard Clip, America's First Poltergeist. And we'll talk about this a little later in the show. But first, Mike, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me back. It's been a while. I, I was listening to your intro and you mentioned that I've been in Intel for 20 years. It's been 25 now. Yeah, that's a long time. Oh, my goodness. And you're a, you're a veteran retired out of the Air Force, right? From the Air Force Reserve. I was active duty for eight years and then spent the rest of my time in the Reserve. I retired in 2017. Wow. Well, thank you for your service. Oh, thank you for your support. Uh, look, I got to tell you, this whole, this gives me the creeps, this whole poltergeist thing and, and stuff. So I'm really anxious to, to hear about your, your new book. So yeah, you did grow up in this area, Northern Beaver County. That's correct. I, I grew up there and uh, as well as a little bit in Columbiana County, Ohio, just across the border there. And I stayed until I was 20 when I left for the Air Force. So you really know this area well, you know, you grew up with these legends. Let's talk a little bit about these legends in a general sense. So these are, these are folklore, right? Folk legends, lore, legends, however you want to put these. These are the things, the stories that our communities have passed on through generations, right? Is that, is that a way to, that you would put it? Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. It's more entertainment than history, although there's history involved. Some of these tales are useful for uh, teaching children especially, to avoid dangerous areas. 
I think that's what um, the pig lady's tail was used for, quite frankly. Oh. As well as Gretchen's lock. You know, staying away from something dangerous like um, a waterway or, in the pig lady's case, cannel coal mines. Stay out. And don't don't go down to that trestle, the old trestle bridge over the creek and smoke your dope and drink your beer. Or That's right. Or the, the pig lady. Of <laughs> that's right. And that's a universal theme, right? Stay away from the water, do as you're told, your disobedience will come back to uh, haunt you. In New Mexico, where I spent a lot of years, they have a tale of La Llorona, and this is the weeping woman of the river, weeping woman of the water, they call her. And she, uh, you know, the story is, the short form is that she ended up, she murdered her children for some crazy reason, and she laments that, so she's haunted, walks the waterways, and she wails throughout the night, and she warns all children to stay away from the waterway, right? So it functions in the same way. Yeah, it sounds like a lady in white. There's lady in white stories pretty much in every state. In Ohio's, I wrote about in, in that first book was Esther Hale. And the legend is to basically keep you away from the creek or especially the dangerous bridge that was there. <laughs> she was supposed to uh, show up and harm you if you were on the bridge at, at night. Mm -hmm. Now, l let me ask you something. And I'll just cut straight to the chase on this. Most people don't believe these things, right? Yeah, I would say that's true. But they love them. Well, that's entertainment. Yeah, it's, I think that's why we still love fantastic movies today or podcasts, you know, fiction podcasts, because it's it's entertainment. It's it's fun to hear, and there might be something you can learn through that, but um, it's it's just fun. Yeah, fun, and uh, and we love to uh, we love to frighten ourselves. Which is, that's just a yeah. hu human thing. <laughs> exactly. Which goes back to the you know the notion that almost all cultures all around the world, as far back as history can tell, all cultures have practiced the art of folkloring, the art of telling the legends and, and repeating the lore, passing down the lore from campfires to today's television sets, right? It's a, it's a deeply human thing that we do. Oh, for sure. It's ubiquitous. And that's where I learned most of these stories was around backyard campfires. Mm. Growing up in Canton, especially, my grandfather loved to tell the story of Barbara Davidson. And then my dad, of course, picked that up and he told it to my kids. Yeah. Now, your dad was very instrumental in sort of formalizing the, uh, well, if my history is correct, years and years and years ago, people have been doing things like taking carriage rides out into the countryside in the hopes of seeing Barbara Davidson, uh, the apparition. But your dad, with the Little Beaver Lions Club, was instrumental in bringing Barbara Davidson tale back connected to a Halloween celebration, right? Yeah, there's quite a history, and I promise I'm going to write up one for you for the website. Okay. <laughs> the earliest version of the story I can I can find is from 1914, but we know it was has been told at least since the 1860s on. But yeah, there's been folks that have used it, especially for Halloween-type events, all the way back to the 30s and 50s. Mr. Rich Oswald was a teacher in the Beaver County school system, and he actually wrote a, a play and he had he taught the, the legend to kids through the play that they would put on every year for families around Halloween. Um, and that was in the 80s and 90s. Uh, the Little Beaver Lions Club built the Pig Lady Haunted Barn. And that was in the 2000s. I think it started in 2010. And it ran until 2014. And it was pretty successful. They, they used it to raise money for um, the different charities that they support. And then... It, the barn set set uh, neglected for many years after 2014, and Dad was looking for a way to get people motivated to come help him tear it, the haunted portion of it down from the haunted house, so that the barn could be reused by its owners. And uh, 
I started writing the history of the tale just as a little Facebook thing to get people interested in helping them. And it turned out to be a fun hobby. Ended up becoming a book. I wrote it from 2016 to 2019. It was published in 2019. And uh, that year in Darlington days, when we debuted the book, I had a signing there. Uh, Sally Mahon, uh, my dad and I decided to try and build this festival. And so that, that year in the fall, we, we decided we wanted to do something different than most of the haunted attractions that are out there. We didn't have, you know, we wouldn't have a, want to have uh, jump scares and, you know, clowns chasing you around with chainsaws. We wanted to bring back traditional events like, um, you know, bobbing for apples and a costume contest and lots of fun games. And then storytelling was the most important part of it. We brought in Tony Lavorna to tell local tales around a bonfire, and that turned out to be extremely popular. So, I mean, it's still going on today. I'm glad you took it over. I think the potential is just amazing for this this topic, this subject, as an event that people come around in the evening, around the campfires, that still goes on. People love to hear these stories. They're riveted. And so, 2019 is when that was re-resurrected. And, of course, COVID tanked our 2020 celebration. And then, so we picked up in 21... And our theme was uh, UFOs and some of those more um, unexplained phenomenon of Bigfoot in the area or sightings of uh, what they call cryptids. We got off track, it seemed. <laughs> but the, the people loved it nonetheless. That's right. <laughs> uh, but you know, okay, so in terms of folklore, that story of the UFO sighting that started in... It started in Portage County. In Ohio, and, and came all the way, was chased all the way into Conway Borough, into the county. I mean, that is still talked about today as something that was factually true, um, but it's really taken on this crazy life of its own in the, the UFO sphere uh, of this thing like wow this may this very well could have been the impetus for some of the scenes that ended up in close encounters of the third kind and whether that's true or not i don't know it is but yes spielberg talked about it that's why he had some extras in there that were involved with the that reporting of the chase so see that, that's why you're the expert mike so you you know these little facts that make this uh, come to life that's a big thing for beaver county right the, the, the our big ufo connection um that was in 21. And last year we had witchery, witchery in Western Pennsylvania. And boy, I think a lot of people learned a lot about this topic of witchery um, because I think like my, myself included, we all thought it was about witchcraft, you know, demonic arts, black arts or witchcraft. That event did a great job educating all of us as to this um, phenomenon of witchery, Appalachian witchery, uh, Pennsylvania Dutch witchery, the art of using divining rods, for example, planting crops under certain conditions. You spill some salt, you throw some over your shoulder for good luck, uh, folk medicine, kitchen table stuff. That's all witchery, not witchcraft. Yeah, or more commonly known as folk magic. Yeah, that was very fun. I really enjoyed that topic. I was surprised at how leery folks were when we when we announced it and we had to explain over and over again, no, we're not doing black magic. We're not interested in the dark arts. We're talking about folklore and folk magic. It's something that's still carried out in, in the hills of Appalachia today. So Oh yeah. And I think once people got it, they got it. And they connected because so many people and, and quite frankly, Mike, this is what 
um, that experience kind of drove me to start a project exploring Appalachian Beaver County because I realized so many people said, oh yeah, my grandmother used to do this and we still do this in our family and we won't plant uh, except on a certain slope of the of, of a hillside, you know. So all that stuff is tied back to these old folkways and traditions and tied to food ways and music and uh, the scary tales that we tell around the campfires or on Halloween and so forth. So anyways, I started to explore our place in the Appalachian region. So we are totally connected to all of this. And that was a very fascinating thing. And this year for our festival, we are focusing on, along with the Appalachian theme, we're focusing on storytelling through music. So we have a couple of musicians coming and they are going to sing some uh, of the ballads and some of the old timey songs that are ancestors sang as part of our musical heritage. Um, some of it is more recent than others. Some of it goes back a long ways. So we're very excited to sort of take this new approach for the 2023 show. We're also going back to our roots with a reading of the Pig Lady tale. And we're going to talk about an investigation, a ghost investigation, paranormal investigation that was done in 2019 around Barbara Davidson's actual homestead, where she was presumably murdered in the 1790s. So we have a paranormal investigator talking about that investigation. The Ohio Paranormal Group, they spoke at the 2019 event. And so they're back again with us th this year. And we are going to do something also very special. We're going to honor and recognize your dad's love of tall tales and these stories by having a reading of some sort. We're trying to work out the details as if yet, but we're going to have, it's either going to be an audience participation thing, or we'd love, we're trying to find some children to read some tales for the J.M. Gishbucker uh, Memorial Tall Tale segment of the show. I think it's a great homage to your dad uh, to have something like that. I think he would like it. Do you? Oh, he would love it. That was his favorite thing to do was tell stories. If you look at my first book, there's two or three of his tall tales that just kick off the whole chapter of the Barbara Davidson of history slash folklore. He wrote one called The Red Eyes that he would read to us. He would add little bits around each campfire and to eventually he wrote it down after probably 20 years of perfecting this scary story that he came up with that he was very proud of. So that's in the book. Maybe we should record that for your event. Oh, that would be awesome. I'm going to look that up, see what we can do with that. Yeah. So we're hoping that, you know, in future years that we can grow this celebration, we could dabble into different things and bring to not only our Northern Beaver County folks, but a wider audience, of course, you know, the, the rich heritage that we have in our folklore. And one of the things that we're going to have this year that showcases some of the, our local tales, we're going to talk about tarot. And this actually comes from last year's celebration. It was inspired by the the witchery stuff. And so um, we have a discussion about Appalachian tarot reading, the cards, and the creators of this Appalachian tarot deck. Very cool deck that actually has cards of the pig lady and cards of the green man, which uh, is Ray Robinson, otherwise known as um, Charlie No Face. He has a, a card in that deck and uh, Mothman, I think, is in there from West Virginia. And there are a few other locals there that are celebrated in this deck. So it's, there are these legends and lore that we have in our local area that find themselves into the whole witchery realm of, I don't even know if that's the right way to put that, but in the realm of Appalachian mysticism, I should say, divining people's fortunes and their states of mind and so forth through the tarot experience. I gotta admit, I don't know anything about tarot, so I'm gonna go on this journey along with everybody else. And Mike Rowe, my local radio celeb, been around for a long time, is going to host our evening for us. So it's going to be very exciting. And we're going to top it off with 
Night of the Living Dead, perhaps the greatest horror movie ever made. The beginning, the beginning of all the zombie movies. And, uh, and that's a local production, actually. Oh, it's my absolute favorite. I, it's a ritual to watch it every Halloween here in, in my household. Uh, the kids are getting sick of it, but I, I can't get enough. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I was thinking about passing around the lines, right? So everybody can know the lines, like a like the Rocky Horror Picture Show thing, right? Because we know the lines to so many scenes of that that film. But uh, so we're going to we're going to top off our evening with the movie around the campfires that are going and so forth. So it should be very excited. But but let's come back to this idea of folklore as a serious thing. You know, we live by these things. It's a part of our entertainment scape, um, whether it's in a movie or whether it's uh, told around a campfire. This this folklore stuff is very important, not just here locally, but all throughout the Appalachians. And I, and I wanted to ask you about your new book, The Wizard Clip. Uh, you are saying that this was our first poltergeist tale? America's first poltergeist tale. America's first poltergeist tale. Oh, you have to explain that. Yeah, so the story uh, happened in the 1790s. It, depending on who tells the story, it was either in George Washington's first term as president or a second term. So very early in the formation of the United States. And it is a poltergeist tale, depending on who tells it. Uh, so there's two cultural groups that preserve the legend. One which is basically just storytellers, folklorists from that area that tell a secular version of the story. And then the Catholic Church tells their variant, um, which they used for propaganda is probably not the right word, but... When the church came to Virginia in that time frame, it was right after the revolution. So there was still a lot of prejudice against the Catholics um, in that part of the country because before the war, the church was state-run um, in Virginia. It was an Anglican church uh, and then Episcopal after the war. So the Catholics didn't have very much of a foothold in that territory at all. Eventually, they started having circuit rider priests that would come into the territory to uh, provide services to Catholic um, settlers. They found that, um, you know, it was, it was a tough going. There was a lot of uh, animosity left over from um, the wars in Europe, especially after the Reign of Terror. So that was very anti-Catholic sentiment. So they used this story, which was basically a conversion story. It was a, a Lutheran family that became haunted, I guess is the right word. It was under a spiritual attack and physical attack. Eventually it took years, but it kept building by this entity. Um, the Catholic tales call it a ghost, poltergeist. But at the time, um, during the Enlightenment, Protestants, to include Lutherans, didn't believe in ghosts. They um, a very staunch belief in that once you die, you either go straight to heaven or hell, so there couldn't be a ghost. So it was a demon. So depending on who's the storyteller, is it's a demon or it's a ghost? The Catholic version talks about it being a, an entity from purgatory. Like I said, there's so many different variations, but I focus on a few that were told by um, folklorist Ruthann Music, for instance, is a very famous um, folklorist from West Virginia. And then I also researched the Catholic archives because at least the, the versions that they kept for posterity, for history in their archives, treated as a true tale. This absolutely happened to them. Um, in their version, it's, it is history. It's not folklore. So I wanted to respect both sides, and and, and I think I did. Uh, but I, this book is a history showing how both sides use the story for different purposes, economic, religious conversion, promoting how the Catholic uh, side was able to overcome this entity. Um, and they used it for, um, you know, proselytizing uh, and, and, and drawing folks into their 
their community. So the tale had utility from both religions. It functioned, it had utility, had value in that sense, beyond its just spooky nature. As you mentioned, I think you put it right, uh, these things have such entertainment value. But yeah, that was just kind of a serious uh, function yeah. of that tale. Yeah, if I, I'm going to just read a paragraph for you. Um, just kind of an introduction to the story. The Appalachian legend of the wizard clip, America's first poltergeist, is not a ghost story. It is a story about how individuals and groups became motivated to utilize belief in a ghostly legend as a tool for change in the early days of the newly forming American Republic. It explores how historical, social, religious, and economic conditions may have influenced the formation of the belief. However, it is not about whether or not the wizard clip events were or were not true. For the latter, I agree with Reverend Fanati's assumption or assertion in 1879 through his monograph called The Wizard Clip, O Reader, Judge for Thyself. So I do tell the story. I, I use versions from both sides. Um, it's very interesting to me that uh, the Lutheran or, or Methodist versions talk about how it was probably witchcraft that caused the destruction to this family. So there was a lot of destruction. The barn burned down, killed all their animals. There was some kind of <laughs> weird phenomena where they would hear the sound of shears clipping, and then the clothes they were wearing would be clipped in crescent shapes, or um, the family chickens' heads would fall off as they're walking through the yard. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so there's a lot of tales. <laughs> and that's where the, t the, the story gets its name, Wizard Clip, because uh, you know, the earliest versions from the Protestants that lived in that area assumed it was a wizard or a witch that was causing all the mischief. How much do you think people take these things seriously, right? I mean, so they can read about the tale, they can read your scholarship, but do people, uh, beyond the entertainment, whatever, I mean, do they, like, wow, this is uh, interesting stuff, it's informative, do they take it seriously as part of our heritage? What is your sense of that? Well, I think folklore is, is definitely part of our heritage. It's hard to read these stories and not want to know more about how they formed and why people either believe it or don't believe it. I think that uh, that first book I wrote, uh, I was really interested in trying to understand the history behind the folklore and determine how the legends formed, whether it be from something true or why the authors were motivated to form these legends. The second book, I was less interested in that and more interested in trying to figure out what culturally was happening to these groups of people um, at the time when the belief was introduced in these legends. Um, so what conditions were set to allow these stories to take on a life of their own. But to me, whether you believe or don't believe in the story is immaterial. It's still part of our history. I talk a little bit about in the book that, you know, just because we no longer believe that um, you can use spiritual evidence in court cases doesn't make the Salem witchcraft trials any less horrific or less historically important. It still happened. And it happened because people believed in something at the time that caused them to act. And that is history, whether or not you think that you can be tormented by a witch. That's really interesting. So there are real, I mean, to people in our history have demonstrated that these tales materially impacted their lives, affected their behavior. They structured society. They had, they had dang trials, right? They actually yeah. harmed people under the belief of, of these, these tales. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, the, the, Barbara Davidson's story uh, I find fascinating because it at the time that I was learning the story from my grandfather, I didn't realize that the Doolahan was an actual Scotch-Irish fairy lore. 
you know, and fairy lore is very similar to what we would call poltergeist lore today. The fairies would cause all kinds of mischief. But the, the Duilohan was a, a headless spirit that would ride ho- a black horse and, and torment you. This somehow has been used across generations in different folklore. The legend of Sleepy Hollow is a, is a Duilohan story. Um, and then I think that's what motivated whomever to develop the Barbara Davidson folklore because her original story is a headless ghost story, which there are many there across the country and Europe as well. Um, and uh, then somehow in the 1950s, the, the pig had got <laughs> included. <laughs> you know, these stories evolve over time. And that's unfortunate because uh, I think the Doolan stories are, are very fascinating. And, you know, and her legend began in 1795, which is supposedly the same year that the uh, headless ghost from uh, Washington Irving story was supposed to be uh, scaring people in New York, even though we know that is meant to be complete fiction. So all across the frontier, there were headless ghosts and apparitions that appeared <laughs> at yeah. small towns everywhere. Yeah, it was very popular back in the, especially after the Revolutionary War and after the Civil War. And I think it has a lot to do with um, the use of cannons <laughs> and, and sabers. But uh, it's not as popular today. You don't hear as very many uh, headless ghost stories, new ones anyway. That is fascinating stuff for me. And and so, so let me get your thoughts on how important it is. And if you could talk a little bit about your efforts to institutionalize, if you will, or have the Barbara Davidson tale formally recognized as as folklore from our area. Um, but how important is it for us to not only, um, you know, keep these things alive at our festivals and fairs and celebrations and so forth in our entertainment sphere, but also as, um, you know, as, as an integral part of our heritage, our social cultural heritage. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, I'll start first with what I'm trying to do to preserve it. I mean, I wrote the book because I was motivated to make sure that the story didn't die out um, when the uh, barn was torn down. Now I'm working through the Pomeroy Foundation to get a Legends and Lore grant to erect a historical marker in Candleton to make sure that it, it stays part of our history, although I don't think it's going away anytime soon. I think this is really important work, and that's what I get from you telling me as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love history personally, and I, I want to dive deep into each of these stories and, and try to figure out what motivated their formation. I've disappointed some folks that have bought my books and realized that it's all just not a whole bunch of ghost stories that freak you out, but I think others appreciate the time I've taken to really painstakingly dive deep into some of the history that was surrounded these stories. Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that because I think we see this at the Pig Lady events. Some people expect to be entertained with a super spooky story like they would get at the cinema or on TV. And they're disappointed when, you know, like last year, Thomas White, who was one of our most notable folklorists in the in the area, went on and on and on and on and almost like a sort of a lecture series talking about uh, witchery. And I think a lot of people were like, oh, that's a little too cut and dry for me. Yeah. Flip side, a lot of people were way into that. They wanted to know those nuts and bolts and they wanted that sort of history side of, of these practices and so forth. So... I don't know, maybe you can't please everybody, of course, but uh, the fact that we are, the fact that you have, uh, you know, you just take this back to your dad and, and uh, let's take it back to Ira Mansfield. The fact that everyone has contributed one way or another to capturing, preserving, and sharing our local folklore is really, really a great thing in my estimation. I think where we would be if we didn't have it. 
Yeah. Like you said, some folks might be just interested in the scary story. I, I go back to a story that I grew up with, Gretchen's Lock. It's a spooky tale. And if you walk back to that spot where you can see the lock itself and, and it's in its ruins and especially if you go back this time of year where it's musty because of the leaf mold and gets dark early. And you can see how someone here in that legend while they're in that environment would really be spooked. And that's fun. But also if you are interested in the history of it, there's a ton to learn about why the story formed and who formed it and, and what was happening at the time. And the reason why the legend is about Gretchen, the daughter of E.H. Gill, is because he was the chief engineer building these lock systems in the Sandy and Beaver Canal system. And if you don't know that at the time when he was building it, there was a major protest against the system itself. A lot of farmers didn't want it. Some did. A lot of farmers did because of prosperity it would bring to the region, but others didn't want it because they'd have to give up some of their land. A lot of folks didn't want it because of the slack pools that had to be built, the reservoirs that had to be built would bring malaria. And malaria was the scourge of the time in the 1830s. And so when you read the story of Gretchen's Lock, particularly about how Gretchen died of malaria and she was the chief engineer's daughter, you can see how the legend might have been used as propaganda against the whole building of the canal system. And I think that's equally fascinating to the story itself. Oh, that is really fascinating. I didn't know that. I didn't know those connections there at all. Wow. Yeah, so when you peel that back, when you look at the social, the political, the economic underpinnings behind these tales, and you go, oh, we can see how this came about and when it came about as all relevant to things going on in society at the time. Yeah, that's why I love folklore. It's, it's fascinating. <laughs> yeah, it's a window into who we are. Right. I have to ask you this. Is there any of these legends that kind of freak you out, that kind of make you go, oh, that's a little scary for me? <laughs> well, I mean, my favorite's Barbara's Tale. It'll always be my favorite. I think it's unfortunate and also freaks me out. <laughs> the addition of her having this pig head that is just just trying to imagine it walking up onto that somewhere in the woods would uh, it, i would be terrified but i also think it's unfortunate because if she was a real person and i think that i proved in my book that she was i'm not sure that she would like that her story evolved this way uh, yeah yeah dad, what i have a pig head yeah, what exactly <laughs> so um, yeah well as tony lavorna tells it you know she she loved her pigs she loved her livestock and somehow that translated to getting the pig head. i don't know if that's pretty unfortunate well you know on a serious note so when ray robinson is called i don't say i don't see the connection i don't understand the connection between Ray Robinson and um, his moniker, the Green Man. And that is quite common. There are lots of green men around. Uh, I don't quite see that myself, but, you know, people refer to him as Charlie No-Face. Now, when I was a kid, I saw him. My dad knew him. I'm always apprehensive, and I feel uneasy when people call him Charlie No-Face because he was a real human being. And my dad said he was a super nice guy. And so, to me, he's Ray Robinson. Yeah, so you, you have a contemporary count that's very analogous to the Barbara Davidson story from the 1790s. Um, when I wrote the story, I hadn't really thought that much about it. And that later on, I was like, yeah, man, if she was a real person, this is this is not a good spin on the tale. Um, so that's why I feel like it's important that I help the county erect a sign that shows how the story evolved, but mainly to show that Barbara was Candleton history. Yeah. It's a true unsolved crime story, correct? Well, we don't have enough records to say that it was true. We know that Oh, she's... come on, Mike. Let's say so. Let's just say so. Keep <laughs> sure, it going. Sure, sure, sure. 
Yeah, but we have we there are county um, probate records and things like that that have her name on it. Maybe we should all be so lucky we end up as a myth, a tale, or a legend, or however you want to say it someday. What what a legacy that would be! Uh, who do you have to murder around here to get it to become a folktale? <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Hey, where can people find the Wizard Clip, your latest book? Um, so from the History Press. Um, we'll have it as well as Arcadia. They're, they're, uh, the History Press is an imprint of Arcadia Publishing. Um, but it's also on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all the usuals. I was in Barnes & Noble in two local places around here, in Cranberry as well as in Boardman, Ohio. And I went to the local sections and there's your book. Oh, great. There's your book there, yeah. That's uh, Legends of Lore, that book. And yeah. I'm sure the Wizard Clip will... And what, would you think it'll appear here because you are a local author? Or do you think it'll be more available um, locally in your area, which is the northern Shenandoah area. Yeah, I think it'll be most... So the, the publisher likes to put physical copies in stores um, nearby the, the legendary location. So sure. I know it's in, um, you know, Shepherdstown, Martinsburg, Harpers Ferry, those places in near West Virginia, Boonesboro, Maryland, I just saw it there. But I doubt it makes it up to uh, Beaver County. We have to bring a few copies up and just slip them on the shelves up there. Yeah, we can do that. That's going to be popular. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Bye. You are listening to a production of the Social Voice Podcast Network. to really be scared here. Johnny. You're still afraid. Stop it now, I mean it. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Stop it. You're ignorant. They're coming for you, Barbara. Stop it. You're acting like a child. They're coming for you. Look, there comes one of them now. <laughs>